1: What does motion sound like? With Kizikans free shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com/socks. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not
0: take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well. The following podcast contains
2: explicit language.
0: But the thing that was really great about Little Richard is he peppers conversations with the woo, like that. Like you you could say to him, so Little Richard would still go on the road and he'd be like, ooh, child, I get I get in that car and I woo, I drive to the next gig and woo, and I do my performances and I woo, like that.
1: Welcome to another episode of Represent. I'm your host, Aisha Harris, and today I've got a very fun but also very enlightening conversation for you all with actress and stand-up comedian Kathy Griffin, who you just heard at the top of the show. But first, I'm very excited today because we are going to introduce to you all a brand new segment for Represent, which we like to call Pre-Woke Watching, and coming from behind the... The glass wall... (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) <laughs> yes, <laughs> coming from behind the glass wall in the Panoply Studios in Brooklyn, uh, is my producer Marilyn Williams. Hello, what
2: what? Shout Hi
1: Aisha. <laughs> wow, you're bringing a, a whole new element I'm just to this. Saying. <laughs> I like it. I like it. So yes, yeah, she's she's the person I'm always shouting out at, at the end of each episode. She's the one who makes me sound good, and we're gonna kick off this segment because. I don't even remember how we came up with this. I
2: think it came because of Crash. We were interviewing Paul Haggis. <laughs> remember that, y'all? <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> I remember we were going to... We, we, before every show, Aisha and I like watched the media. That whatever, it's a TV show or a film. And, you know... In order to prep for, for the episode. In order to prep for the episode and Aisha for the interview. And I was like, oh, I remember really liking crash I think my hesitation was just more like I just I just know that Paul Haggis's record and talking to black people has was not very like good so that was more my hesitation but my hesitation had nothing to do with the actual movie because I just remember like you saw it when it first came out right Yeah, I saw it in the theaters okay yeah just think about the average like black power teenager Verlin, that was me <laughs> <laughs> and so I went to go see it and I just thought it was the best thing so sliced bread like I just all my memories of it was like it was a powerful movie I have to admit that I felt the same way as well
1: <laughs> I, I remember really liking it when I saw it in high school
2: I cried I don't know I, I cried like, I definitely I cry. remember crying <laughs> and also like Ludacris was a big deal at the time Like let's not even <laughs>
1: and
2: you know talking about pre-woke right <laughs> There's a whole lot there. Hey, Luda's fun still. I st- I, I made out girls in different area codes. That song, I'm, I can't listen to it the same way anymore. Uh, I got hoes. I mean, you know, in different area. Really. I
1: I can't cut out everything. <laughs> right, I find you're <laughs> right. And <laughs> come on now, I mean, he's That's got true. some good. He's got some still still fire. Tracks. I mean,
2: it's yes, it still like tugs at my like memory heartstrings. But you know, so. Luda was a big deal. It was a big, to me, like Tandy Newton. Like, they just had some people in there where I was just like, wow, this is such a compelling, powerful scene. At the time, black people in movies and television in general was a rarity <laughs> for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, just seeing that on a level that didn't feel like it was a quote-unquote black movie, right, that was that all made it, like, something that was very memorable, Rewind to 2016. <laughs> and I watched it one morning and I just, I felt like it was punishment. Like I turned it on I, and I was thinking, oh, I'm gonna have an easy morning. I'm gonna watch it, and make breakfast. And I was watching it and I was just like, this is a bad movie. Like, not only, mm. like right from that, the first scene when, you know, Luda and what's the, I forget his Lorenz name, Lorenz Tate. Luda and Lorenz Tate oh. and they're walking. And they're, like, having this, like, super Hotep conversation, right? And then... <laughs> super Hotep. <laughs> and then, um, and for those that don't know, Hotep means, like, black man. Like, I don't know. How would you explain Hotep? To Nate someone? Parker? Nate Parker, <laughs> I guess. Mm. I mean, that's the most, like... Said a whole lot. <laughs> I mean, I'm just
1: saying that's the most relevant thing I can think of.
2: Yeah, like anyone that will be like my sister, like anyone that starts a conversation with my sister, my sister, <laughs> they're going down a hotel road, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that's fair. Okay. So, and then they have that scene where they're just like... We're the only two black faces surrounded by a sea of overcaffeinated white people, patrolled by the trigger-happy LAPD. So you tell me, why aren't we scared? Because we got guns. You could be right. Come on. Give me the key. Come on. Okay, Hurry okay, up. Okay, okay, and then okay, they okay, just stick a no, no. Sandra Bullock, Right. And it's supposed to be like a funny, like, haha. Ha. And that's when it went all all went down from there. So
1: that's when you realized that you had had a, a pre woke like moment with that movie when you first saw it.
2: Yeah, because I think when I first saw it, I probably thought it was like deep. Yeah. Like I thought maybe them even talking about race or even acknowledging race. Was on some level important, (laughs) Um, and I think watching it back, I see that they really he he didn't there wasn't much effort. It was just like let's just bring it up a very surface level. And I think in that conversation with him, like my walk away was that he wasn't making it for woke people. Like he wasn't really he wasn't making it for anyone that had any real deep analysis of intersexuality or race. He was making it for. To quote him, his liberal white friends, yeah, that thought that they were doing that they didn't have these biases, but then they watched that, and then maybe they saw something in them, maybe, but maybe if that, why why are they your friends? <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about that. <laughs> 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 like it just yeah
1: yeah. So that's your that's one of your. I mean, we could we all have so oh many. My God, yeah, I mean, mine so we had this conversation as Mm -hmm. well where recently my boyfriend and I we it was like I think it was Sunday and we were doing our usual you know Sunday afternoon board game night and we were like we need to put something on the background something that like doesn't require any like full on thought attention Attention. and so we were flipping through Netflix which as I'm sure most people know it can take hours before you actually set on something and then we're like oh scary movie 2 came up and I was like I remember, like, really finding this hilarious in high school and all my friends quoting it all the time. Let's just put it on the background. It's stupid, but whatever. We start watching it. I mean, this doesn't necessarily have to be, be do with... I mean, I guess it is being pre-woke in the sense of not even having refined refined taste in comedy because it was just not... Like, looking back on it now, it's the most sophomoric humor you could possibly think of. And, I mean, the Wayans brothers the Wayans family in general is they tend to like indulge in lowbrow humor like even watching in Loving color which is another thing we could talk about like oh. that show has not aged I well i can't even watch
2: it again cuz i do wanna, i don't want to i don't want to ruin the memory I, yeah it, do, it i've watched it in my 20s and
1: it does has not aged well but yeah so the movie just not it's i will say <laughs> i do still for some reason find what is her name shoot, Regina Hall.
2: Is she the one that's... The black, um...
1: The uh, she plays uh, Brenda in the scary movie movies. And I just, I don't know, she plays the stereotypical black woman in every way, shape, or form, but I still just think she's really funny in the movie, even 20, like, however many years later it's been. But there's this one scene in it, and I think this is as far as we got before we turned it off, and it was pretty far, but <laughs> there's this one scene where Tori Spelling is asleep in her bed and from nine one two one zero. was she ever in nine one two? She's the daughter of Aaron Spelling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she wasn't. Uh, I don't. Huh? I don't know. I. She, I yeah,
2: I, she was the virgin on nine one two one zero. Oh,
1: okay. <laughs> With Tori Spelling, I I mostly know her because now she's just like a cultural punching bag or whatever. She's gotten had a, has a lot of issues, but yeah. So she's in her bed sleeping. And the door opens and there's a ghost. And, you're like, you can't see the ghost. But you see the door opening and he's, like, making, like, grunting noises. And then she, he, like, starts to, like, fondle her. And she's, like, asleep. She doesn't notice. And then she... Berlin's face is like... Oh, what? my God. <laughs> and then, at, at, then she, he... Eventually this ghost who we still can't see. We never see the ghost. Like, she... He puts his his dick in her mouth and she like suddenly wakes up and she's like at first she's like whoa what's going on and then she like starts to enjoy it and then it turns into him like humping her and she like winds up on the wall like it's ridiculous like he winds up like humping her and they like wind up going upside down on the wall because it's like a weird movie and I was like this would not fly in 2016 there would be 8 million think pieces pieces about (laughs) about how they're making this like what is what is a rape essentially Mm. into this humorous moment where the woman, like, is like, oh, actually, I'm really into this. And she can't even see. It's a, it's a ghost. You can't see, like... <sighs> so, And that, that's when it's I was so like, wow, I can't believe I...
2: Okay, so you know, I know people are listening to this and they're just like... <laughs> Y'all need to relax. Stop being so sensitive. Like, there is, like, a, at least a portion of the audience that's sure. thinking this right now. Yes. And so I guess, like, as we're going through this segment, and like we said, it's going to be a future segment, like, I guess my question in thinking about this is how far down the rabbit hole do we want to go? Well, I, th- I
1: think I think the thing is, is that, you know, part of it is that we are older and wiser, I hope, now. And so there are certain things that especially and especially with the times changing now. There are certain things we think about I mean to bring if we want to bring it back to Nate Parker, the idea of consent and what consent means. And we've changed the public as a whole is changing and evolving on what consent really means. And I think we're we're moving beyond just no means no in that sense. And I think also with movies and T V shows, we're moving beyond like what's okay to show on TV and film. And and the thing is is that especially for millennials like us I feel like we're experiencing one of the greatest changes in in terms of that and what we've consumed because Mm -hmm. you know kids growing up today now I think they have a like they have way more awareness at a younger age than we did Mm -hmm. in part because shout out
2: to all the tumblers
1: yeah and you know and and believe me there's certain like there's certain lines I won't cross like I definitely I I'm (laughs) this is a whole nother debate but I I fall on the I'm not. I'm definitely not one of those people who is fully championing, championing the idea of like um, censorship at schools mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And that uh, we can have a whole conversation yeah, about so, that. Yeah. That gets a little touchy. But I think I think the whole point of this is to question like what we're watching. Yeah, and we can even enjoy like I, there's still things that I enjoy. You know, like Breakfast at Tiffany's. I love that movie. We cannot forgive the fact that Mickey Rooney is in. Yellowface playing a character who just like yells around it's the blatant stereotype, and I mean I still like the movie I just hate his part. Um, when I saw it when I was younger I don't think I really thought any I don't even think I knew it was Mickey Rooney I just and also
2: you probably didn't have the language for Yellowface you know definitely not you yeah we don't we didn't have these these terms that we have now yeah I mean one movie that I loved like I know all the words to Soul Food. Right. So, I... Every time I hear Soul Food, I think of that <laughs> hilarious line
1: from Boondocks.
2: Soul Food is a movie about a big humongous black grandmother, aptly named Big Mama. Big Mama demonstrates her love by feeding herself and her offspring enormous amounts of pig love. Then she dies of a heart attack or another stroke or something.
1: God. Oh. <laughs> but that's like, that's, I'm sorry, that's that's what I think of whenever I think of soul food.
2: But, I mean, the way that they treated the cousin after, I don't know if you remember, but there's a scene where the cousin cheats on with um, Vanessa Williams' character, mm. uh, Faith. When Faith, I could curse, it's weird being on this side. When she's like, Faith, you know, I trust the family and you know what? The family fucked my husband. <laughs> Yes, that's right. Faith fucked my husband. And I remember, like, always, every time I've watched that, I've always just been like, Faith is such a hoe. Like, can't believe she did that. But now that I'm, like, 30 and I think about that, I'm like, but why did everyone attack Faith? Like, her husband definitely had a lot to do with that. Thank
1: you. I hate when
2: that happens. Oh, my God. So, I mean, I think, like, wokeness can be on a lot of different levels. Mm -hmm. And to your point, I could still watch soul food and enjoy it, but have a deeper analysis of what what messages they're actually sending us. Right.
1: Essentially, we're just looking at the things that we once loved and or like watch without ever questioning and going back and saying,
2: that's kind of screwed up. That was, that was oh. something about this. How about my husband fucked Faith? <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. How about, you know, it yeah, takes two. It takes two. But
1: really, you should be mad at your husband and not her. Anyway, so yeah, we'll, this new segment, will be interviewing different people about their pre-woke watching experiences, things that they once really loved or appreciated and then just realized, huh.
2: It's a lot fucked up with this. Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I can't wait. <laughs> Me
1: neither. So stay tuned for those on future episodes. Absolutely. And also, you all should send them to us too. Like hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, tell us your like most memorable pre-woke watching experiences <laughs> <laughs> and what changed about that. Yeah. So yeah, Slate represents Twitter and Facebook.
2: I'm gonna go back behind the glass wall now. Farewell. <laughs> <laughs>
1: And now we'll move on to my conversation with Kathy Griffin. She's a vet in this business, having begun her career in the improv comedy group The Groundlings in the early 80s, and then going on to co star in the Brookshield sitcom Suddenly Susan, her own hugely successful reality show My Life on the D List, and a countless number of stand up tours and comedy specials. I really admire so much about her because she's just super candid and super open, and I'm looking forward to everyone hearing this conversation. We talked about how she got into show business, how she handles rejection and criticism in an industry that's especially harsh to women, and her new book, Kathy Griffin's Celebrity Run-Ins, My A to Z Index. Well, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon, Kathy, all the way from California via phone. It's my pleasure. I'm a big fan of your work. Oh, thank you. And me too. I, I have to say you you've done so many tours and I actually remember you coming to my freshman year orientation in college. And I do not uh, at Northwestern. This was like years ago. Um, And I don't remember anything you said, but I remember being very, very entertained and laughing the entire night. So
0: that's all I ask. You don't (laughs) have to remember me. Just remember that you were laughing. And if it was a college gig, just remembering that I survived because I have done colleges where, um, you know it's been a little bit of a challenge yeah. sometimes because you know when you do a college to begin with sometimes in fact most of the times you're either in the basketball court mm-hmm. you know which can be acoustically challenging but more importantly you're kind of trying to walk the line between being as entertaining as possible but the environment at colleges has really changed and you know, now there's, like, signs outside my shows that have, like, trigger warnings and stuff. So I have to do sort of a whole preemptive strike when I do colleges that basically says, all right, you are in a safe zone to be comedically unsafe. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, just, it's a very different uh, environment. Like, colleges are very different from doing, like, a theater or a performing arts center, which is very different from doing a casino. Casinos are probably um, the most, I guess, unpredictable because yeah. you really don't know if you're going to be performing for, like, people that have lost a bunch of money at the tables or um, some woman who dragged her unsuspecting hus- husband there who <laughs> wishes I was Kevin Hart. You know, you just never know what you're going to get.
1: <laughs> it's it's so funny. Like, so I actually wanted to talk to you, and we might as well just jump into that, uh, about the idea of these safe spaces because you are a comedian who has, you know, like a lot of comedians, you've made your name uh, being – not necessarily mean but you you go after people and and you and you make jokes about people that some people might think are in poor taste and i'd like to know sort of is, has it changed in the last few years? Because when you came to my college, it was probably, like, about a little over a decade ago. So what sort of noticeable changes have you seen in the way college students react to your shows? Is it, I'm assuming it's getting, as you say, a lot tougher. But has it always been tough, or is it just in the last few years that it's been, like, really difficult um, to walk that line? It's definitely
0: gotten tougher in the last, like, couple of years. Um, Seinfeld wrote an essay about this. And I think Chappelle isn't doing colleges anymore because there's sort of a feeling that college audiences are getting if there's such a thing as overly sensitive. you know. So what we're going through right now in comedy is a really unique and tricky time. I mean, it's, it's something that I can happily navigate. It's just like a little extra step that I personally think of before I hit the stage, which is, you know, it is uh, a period where comics are being – a little more sensitive to things that we kind of didn't think about five or ten years ago mm-hmm. but there are things that I think every comedian has a different opinion about you know like for me I tend to feel that my brand of stand-up is a very like no holds barred um, you know I've been touring for so long and performing for so many kinds of audiences everything from you know performing in Iraq and Afghanistan. In you know a tent mm-hmm. to performing at you know a giant outdoor gay pride fest to you know Carnegie Hall and so for me I like to kind of uh, proudly stand by my you know I'm inappropriate I'm gonna say things that are wrong and I think what I do now is I kind of go a little extra click and just kind of remind the audience I get that this is something I do and if you guys are buying into this style of comedy I'm your guy. And if not, you know, I give people ample uh, opportunities to leave. I have a joke that I don't feel like I've done my job until someone storms out in a Huff. Mm -hmm. And the thing I've just noticed with colleges is I have noticed there's a definite sort of arc. Like if I'm doing a show, let's say I'm doing 90 minutes. Typically I do two hours, but at college usually they want a little bit shorter. Then, you know, it's definitely a little bit different. I mean, I did a show at Hofstra recently, and I felt like the audience needed about 20 minutes to kind of – get into, like, the kind of in-your-face brand of comedy that I'm going for. Yeah. Because, as you said, I go for people, and I just tend to kind of preface it now a little bit with, all right, you guys, I'm going to go for people, or I'm going to use this word, or, you know, this is a bad word, get ready. And I just kind of think that there is room for everybody. So, like, I'm a big fan of all kinds of comedy. You know, I I mean, I think comics that go out there – you know, Ellen DeGeneres or whatever, they'll go out and do a set and they won't use one curse word or Jay Leno. I think that's great. I'm not like that, but I get that everybody has a different style and that's what I love about comedy. So I think right now what I'm personally struggling with and a lot of comics are struggling with in the college landscape is just trying to do what we do and be able to do our job, but understanding, you know, the times are a change in and we're all trying to figure out, is this a good change or a bad change? I mean, a lot of times, Things that are a really positive change for the country or the consciousness aren't a great change for comedy. Yeah. And that's where I stand because as a you know, woman doing stand-up, I've got, I'm sort of juggling some different balls that the guys don't you know, because I do feel that every time I take the stage, it's, it's a – well, my, my friend Gloria Steinem said every time I take the stage, it's, it's an act of feminism yeah. so there's so few of us. Um, but on the other hand, I always am aware of the changing tides of audience sensibilities. And colleges are kind of the, the first ones to let you know what they're into.
1: Yeah. And I also think that you, you a lot of the people you tend to make fun of they it, it doesn't always seem so mean spirited in the way that it can with other comedians. Like you've make you've made fun of Celine Dion and Oprah a lot, and I feel like it comes from a place of love. Like you actually like them, but like you find the humor in even the most ridiculous but still lovable things like that.
0: Oh yeah, I mean that's that's really what I enjoy, and that's why I change my material so often. Is because you know I walk among these folks, and you know I have a unique perspective, which is. I'm kind of, you know, in inside the, I guess, the Hollywood beltway, um, and I sort of rub shoulders with these folks. But, you know, I'm not, like, really – I'm not Leo DiCaprio where I'm, like, rolling deep with, like, Oscar winners and people that really probably have stuff to guard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, typically I tend to make fun of people based on their behavior, yeah. not necessarily their – like, look, like if, I, if I'm going to make fun of Oprah, I'm not just going to walk on stage and go, Oprah's fat. Good night, everybody. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, there's so much to make fun of because she's this larger-than-life character and she's over the top and she's done so many things that are influential and incredible. And so, yeah, I think I'm a, a typical Oprah fan in a lot of ways, which is I truly, truly worship her and think she's like the coolest and has done so many truly important things for women. And on the other hand, I also think she's funny. You know, she's a very genuinely funny person. I think when she started doing, you know, her, her like, introductions of John Travolta, like, I think when she started doing all that stuff, I don't think she herself knew it was funny about it. Yeah. So, you know, someone like Oprah is like a perfect, I say, subject for me because she's out there and she's in everyone's consciousness and she does so many things that are unique to her that, you know, we're kind of thinking about or noticing. And there's a lot of room to play with. And that's kind of my favorite type of person to talk about. You know, I mean, I was actually just texting my friend of me, Ryan Seacrest. And one of the reasons <laughs> Seacrest is kind of a perfect person to poke fun at is that he does have unique things that are just funny about him, like the, you know, the super hyper metrosexual with the mani-pedi and the spiked hair that he flat irons and all that stuff. And on the other hand, he's, you know, he's kind of untouchable in a, in a way, like Oprah. Like, he's so loaded. He really couldn't care less about my little jokes anymore at all. And that's kind of my favorite type of celebrity to go for where they're just like, whatever, take your shots, honey, because I got, you know, my pile of money that I'm counting over here and I have my global fame. So, yeah, I mean, I don't mean to sound like, oh, I only go for people that can handle it. But typically the, the people that I make fun of don't care anymore, whereas when I started my career, I think a lot of celebrities were perturbed. And now they realize it's actually quite harmless,
1: right? Yeah, and you have a new book coming out. It's called Kathy Griffin's Celebrity Run-ins: My A to Z Index, and that's coming out in November. And that is basically you. What I'm—I haven't read it, obviously, but I, I what I assume is you start sort of going through all the celebrities you've, you've run in run into and spoken. to. Yeah, about.
0: I mean, it's. I think. I think I covered about 120 celebrities in that book because the goal was to cover as many celebrities as possible. Yeah. But the thing I'm really excited about with this book is it's these little tiny snippets about celebrities, many of whom I've never even addressed in my act or anything because. I've now been around so long, I'm like that person who's met everybody. Mm-hmm. So I um, have these, in fact, run ins. That's why I call the book that, because they're not necessarily like a lengthy story about this person, but they might be just a little snippet. And a lot of the people in there are people that I may have talked about at length, but then I have this little story I've never told before. And mo- most importantly, it's a book that is going to have a lot of a little bit of a peek or a window into somebody that you wouldn't think I've ever met. You know, I mean, everybody is in there from. Salman Rushdie to Gerald Ford to, you know, I mean, the funny thing is, and I, I think I put this in the intro, the genesis of the book was I was at a hotel with my boyfriend who's uh, 18 years younger than I am. And we watched uh, Straight Outta Compton on the, you know, hotel TV. Yes. And I turned to him and I go, you know, I actually knew, know, or have worked with four of the people depicted in this film. And he was like, what? And I go, yeah, one day I spent the day with Tupac Shakur one time. I, you know, uh did this bit with Snoop Dogg one time where we made out when I hosted the Billboard Awards. Dr. Dre directed me in the Real Slim Shady video. Like I went down the line of like, yeah, there's all these people that I kind of don't really talk about that I've met. So that um ironically straight out of Compton inspired my book.
1: Yeah, I always forget you you were in the Eminem video for Real Slim Shady. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And so what like one of the stories I tell in the book is that the way I got cast in that video was I uh, had done this bit with Snoop Dogg for the Billboard Music Awards because uh, Garth Brooks didn't want to make out with me. I I don't blame him. Oh, neither did Ricky Martin. I asked him, too. So Uh, (laughs) um, I just was going up and down the hall of the Billboard Awards saying, will anybody just make out with me for this one really quick bit? And Snoop said, yeah, I'll do it. So we did that. And then a month later when I was on the set of the, the Reel from Shady, I went up to Dr. Dre and I said, what made you think of me for this role? He said, "Snoop said you were really funny," and I was like, "Well, there you go.
1: Nice. Who, who knows
0: who knows where you're going to get your next nibble?"
1: Yeah. <laughs> so you also you also mention one of the people in your book is Woody Allen. Now, how did you meet him, and how do you feel about him right now?
0: Oh, I think he's guilty. Uh, I mean, I say in the book that um, you know, without putting my accusations in writing, I say something like, you know, let's just say I believe <laughs> Dylan and Ronan.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so, yeah, so I was seated next to him at a dinner party, and uh, it was it was uh, awkward <laughs> because, you know, like many comedians, I certainly admire his work, yeah. but as, you know, as a woman and a human being who looks beyond the work sometimes, I, you know, I, I happen to absolutely 100% believe those accusations, mm-hmm. and so it was, you know, very awkward, and I'm not really a fan the way I used to be, you know, and uh, that's just one crime that... I'm not able to look beyond. And so, uh, yeah, it was a very bizarre evening. And um, he uh, didn't seem to know any of the references I was trying to make because when I was seated next to him, I just thought, you know, I'm just going to, like, just going to try to have some sort of conversation with this guy. We're next to each other at a small dinner. And I was trying to be a little bit witty. And he was kind of like a curmudgeon. Like, he wasn't. He wasn't what I thought he would be in that he was, um, he had an opening joke, which was awkward, but I guess funny, which is he walked in with his wife and he said, this is my child bride.
1: Wait, seriously?
0: Yeah. And so for a minute I was like, all (sighs) right, I can respect like him sort of making like an acknowledgement joke. Like, all right, that's okay. Yeah. (laughs) And then that was the last joke he made. Like, I thought, all right, he's going to be sort of maybe funny, maybe not The weird thing is, I thought he was like incredibly boring, and then it just became funny because I mean, he clearly wasn't. He, I don't, I don't know if he wasn't pleased to be next to me. I would just say he just wasn't really like, kind of didn't really have a feeling about it at all. He was just like head down in his chicken pot pie. Yeah. But um, the kicker was when I was asking him about comedians that he's put in his films. You know, like everyone from, uh, you know, uh, Louis C.K. and Blue Jasmine and Andrew Dice Clay and stuff. And he was just, it was just odd. Like he was acting like he didn't remember putting comedians in movies and stuff. And I was asking him about a lot of the women he had featured, and he just kept talking about Scarlett Johansson all night. <laughs> and uh, then I started just kind of trying to joke with him and talk about pop culture things that I was pretty sure he wouldn't know about because I was asking him about, like, Liev Schreiber, who's a friend of his, and Ray Donovan, and he said he had never seen Ray Donovan. And, and so anyway, I was making a joke when I said to him, well, I'm sure, I'm sure you want to know all the latest Miley Cyrus news. And then he really shocked me, and he said, "I, it's so sad. He said, it's so sad what's happened to her. And I was caught off guard that even knew who that was, honestly, because I was, like, going through this litany. Like, I think I was talking about, like, Kevin Spacey, but he hadn't seen House of Cards. Like, I was trying to go, like, who would this guy know that I might know, like, anything? And when he said the Miley thing, I was like, oh, you know. And I made some joke about Miley's haircut, and then he said, you know, she really, she really had something when she was younger. And I'm thinking, oh, God, Woody Allen is telling me how, like, a grown woman had something when she was younger, and then he told me he had seen every episode of Hannah Montana.
1: Oh, okay. Well, yeah, I, I take that in. Yeah, I'm, I'm taking that in. I I do yeah. know that he he I think he cast her recently in a yeah, show, in a, his in Amazon. an Amazon series. Yeah. So, uh, well, he he certainly lives up to.
0: Apparently, <laughs> his... he really did love Hannah
1: <laughs> Montana. Apparently, which he's...
0: is not a shock, I guess. To
1: yeah, I'm sure he Ultimately. he loves to do party in the USA at karaoke, but. <sighs>
0: Yeah. So this, this book is, I have so many encounters with celebrities. I mean, that's a bizarre one. I also have many, many encounters that are just really like heartwarming, you know, Mm -hmm. like I have, you know, I, I'm like pretty good friends with Sidney Poitier and most people don't know that, but Mm -hmm. you know, what he, what he touches in me is he's just representative to me of so much of like what happens when you get that legendary status and how to use it. And I just I just, I mean, he's obviously a national treasure, but what I so enjoy about him is, besides that he's whip-smart, is I think people don't know he's got, like, a really outrageous, raucous, really fun sense of humor. So I thought, you know what, I'll put this in the book. You know, like, Mm -hmm. I don't run around going, I'm friends with Sidney Poitier, because everyone would be like, okay. But I thought, Mm -hmm. you know what, I think people should know, like— Sydney's is like a couple of things he said to me are like super funny. And I don't know, just things like I've, I've been able to ask him, like, tell me some of the most significant conversations you've had in your life. And he mm. was telling me about going to Griffith Observatory one time with Carl fucking Sagan. You know, so it's like stuff like that, that I just really value those encounters. And I thought, all right, I'm going to put these in a book because I think they're just interesting. So yeah. the book is kind of all over the map. Some of it's funny, some of it's jaw dropping, some of it's heartwarming, mm-hmm. but it's a little bit of everything.
1: Yeah. I would love to step back a little bit and sort of talk about how you even got into comedy to begin with. I know in the past you said you were sort of you were sort of an awkward child or you weren't quote unquote conventionally attractive and so you <laughs> you were a target. Correct. Yeah, and you, you were nailed a, it.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I
1: have, I have a typical story and an atypical story. Mm-hmm. The
0: typical part is, I think like most comedy people you will talk to, male or female, I just, I personally had it, you know, it was I felt like it was in my DNA from almost from when I was born. Like my earliest memories are trying to get a laugh or trying to survive some kind of trauma, like anybody else. I mean, that's not that unique. But I think that in a way I had a family that built me for comedy because my dad was super, super smart, and he could be funny on command. Mm-hmm. My mom, who's still alive... It's hilarious, and she does not know why. I mean, she says ridiculous things all the time, mm-hmm. and she doesn't even know why they're funny. Um, and then, you know, so it kind of gave me two great ways to approach comedy. And then my family is very smart, very combative, very politically engaged, very enamored with Hollywood. So you can see there's sort of all the components. Yeah. And then the other thing, and, and I feel like this was actually a stroke of luck for me, For some reason, from a pretty early age, at least I'd say like my teen years, early 20s, I really got the idea that I wanted to be the sidekick instead of the lead girl. And I think I got that idea just because I loved it. Also being told like I wasn't attractive, I wasn't attractive. And then I very early on figured out that that was actually a preferable role because you can have more longevity, which is kind of my number one focus in my career. Mm -hmm. And also it's kind of more fun. So I started trying to attack those roles at a pretty early age. And uh, guns blazing, because as a woman in comedy, because I started out as a comedic actress, and then I became a female stand-up comic. Uh, first of all, those are two different fields, so I want to be clear about that. A comedic you know, actress is very different from a female stand-up comedian who stands at a microphone, in my case, by myself for two hours with every single word I've, I've written myself. And a comedic actress is somebody that, you know, maybe somebody else wrote the stuff or they're acting with other people. And I've done both, and they're both equally awesome, but Mm -hmm. they're different. So what's weird about me is I actually went about it, as my mother would say, ass backwards. So I was in the Groundlings Theater Group, which is an improv comedy group. A lot of the SNL people are from there. And then um, later on, I started doing stand-up. And I didn't even start doing stand-up until I was in my, like, geez, like my early 30s. So that alone is pretty unusual. So I did my first commercial when I was 17. But I didn't start doing stand-up until later, and uh, and then I just did everything I could, you know, uh, everything possible. I mean, I did every free gig you can imagine. I did everybody's student film. I did everybody's demo reel. I did everybody, you know, I did free plays forever. I mean, I'm still doing free stuff constantly, and that's one of the things I also learned early on is not at all having anything resembling early success. Mm -hmm. I learned early on you have to do whatever it takes. And you do gigs for money and then you do gigs for free and everything in between. You try to do all kinds of comedy, from stand up to sketches to sitcoms to plays, Every, any way you can get your tentacles in there. And which, of course, brings me to my next topic because when you're a chick comic, <laughs> and I can say that, when you're a chick comic, you absolutely have so many, so fewer opportunities, it's almost incalculable. Wait, that's not a word. I'm going to leave the journalistic part up to you. <laughs> but, <laughs> the point is, when you're a chick comic, Uh, You really have to work harder and jump higher. And let me tell you, when you're a 55-year-old female comedian, you are, you know, let me just say – you are underrepresented, uh, underrepresented, certainly in television. So that's kind of my new, my new phase is like making, doing as much work as I can and being out there as much as I can as a 55 year old woman trying to break down as many barriers as I can and try to get just a tenth of the opportunities that my male counterparts have.
1: So you, you do a lot of touring. Like I, you are a, a for lack of a better word, you're a workhorse. You, you work really, really hard and you're always touring. Aisha,
0: 80 cities. This year.
1: Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That is so much. And I'm doing it because I just feel like every day I just have to get out there
0: and prove I can do it. I can do more than the guys. I mean, Chris Rock asked me if I owe child support, which is one of my favorite questions.
1: (laughs) Well, do you? Not that I know of. Okay. Good.
0: Good. Don't hate the player. Hate the game.
1: (laughs) Now, like, well, that's the thing is that someone like Chris Rock or Amy Schumer or Louis C.K. they all have – found their way into and you you obviously you were on subtly settling susan for uh, several seasons in the in the early in the uh, late 90s but you do you have any desire to actually play more straightforward scripted roles or star in your own series because that seems to be oh
0: absolutely absolutely i mean i you know i have meetings with all the networks all the time Mm -hmm. and frankly it's all the same old white guys that are making all the decisions and yes there are some women that are powers position powers but yeah. let me tell you it's the same old middle-aged or senior citizen white guys that are still signing the checks mm. and here's the deal you know I I don't know Michael Strahan but I'm not golfing with Bob Iger and in my humble opinion that's how you get jobs yeah and you know what I mean I look at that and I go it's hard it's hard not to get discouraged I look at that sequence of events and by the way obviously straight <laughs> I mean I picked a name but I mean When I heard he was golfing with Bob Iger when that whole thing went down with uh, the the Ripa
1: show, Ripa, yeah. You know,
0: I was just like looking at that whole thing going, I like Ripa. You know what I mean? I know her a little. I like her. But I look at that and I go, you know what? I'm not Kelly Ripa. I'm not like a cute, blonde, skinny chick that is in all the fashion pages. Mm -hmm. Like,. I look at that, and already I'm like, okay, I would love that job, but I'll never even be considered. I'm too vulgar. I'm too loud. I'm too old. My nose is too big. I mean, I've heard all that stuff. I used to, like, to my face. Like, these guys say this shit to my face. Like, I just want to be clear. If you if you talk to other women, and I'll, you know, I'm always, my mom has this great joke where she says, why do you always have to um, burn the bridge of the people signing the checks? And mm-hmm. she's right. I can't resist. But I feel like this opportunity to talk to you is kind of like important because I just want you to know like there's a lot of women out there that will just absolutely not admit this. And mm-hmm. I will, maybe to my detriment. But I'm telling you, these executive dudes, they say this shit right to your face and you just go, What's the point? What's how do you
1: the point? how do you how do you deal with that, like internally? How do you oh. just pick yourself up? And I have I
0: just you I just am constantly trying to figure out a side way in. I mean, my story, and I would just say this is a story for many, many women. Like I said, I'm going to really hit you hard with the over 50, but mm-hmm. it's hard, babe, because it's like I feel like they're trying to put me out, of, out to pasture, and I don't want to go. Yeah. You know what I mean? I have done 23 stand-up comedy specials, more than any comedian, living or dead, male or female. Yeah. I mean, I, and one of the reasons I wanted to be in the Guinness Book of World Records is I want other women to see that and go, oh, a woman set this record. Mm-hmm. It didn't get a lot of noise. Nobody really cared. But, <laughs> but you know what? I'm in the damn Guinness Book of World Records. I have a Grammy for Best Comedy Album. I'm one of only three women to win the Grammy for Best Comedy Album in the history of the Grammys. After right. It's me, Whoopi, and Lily Tomlin. Exactly, And I yeah. think most, a lot of women don't know. And a lot of guys don't care. So I keep doing so like when you ask me, how do you combat that? That's what I do. And then I have a meeting with these, all these studio heads, network heads, film studio heads, whatever. And I go in there with my Emmys and my Grammys. Sometimes I physically bring them and it's like, haha funny, <laughs> but trust me, it's also like, all right. So the guys you're considering, do they have these? And they don't. Yeah. So look, I, you know, when, when Craig Ferguson was clearly like wanting to leave that show, you know, I would have just given my right arm for that show. And look, Corden's a talented guy. Obviously, he's got a Tony. I get it. But, I mean, I lobbied for that, and I just kept hearing over and over, we're just not considering women for that role.
3: They, they and straight up said they that.
0: They didn't. Or any of the late night nightly network shows. I mean, most people don't understand. Wow. Not since Joan Rivers has a woman had a nightly network talk show. Yeah. I mean, everyone thinks, and just, you know, like when I was growing up in Illinois and I was watching Joan take over for The Tonight Show, I absolutely naively thought, oh, now it's going to be like half and half. Mm-hmm. And then it never happened again. And look, I think it's, you know, obviously it's amazing that Chelsea Handler has her show and I love the Samantha Bee show, but you know, that's cable and Netflix. Right. So I think it's appalling. And when I ran around trying to point that out, Nobody cared. <laughs> nobody cared. So I just keep going, okay, well, that didn't work out. I'll try to get something else. So, yes, I would love to do another scripted show. I'm constantly – I wrote a pilot last year. You know, I wrote my book this year. Like, I'm just constantly writing new stuff, doing anything I can. I mean, I do little films online just like everybody else. I'm doing um, – you know, I do appearances. I'm going to be appearing both nights at the iHeart Radio Music Festival where I'm going to be working for literally five hours each night doing, like, jokes and coming out and doing stuff backstage, like running around with a chicken with a head cough? Mm -hmm. Am I one of the guys who can just walk out for 30 seconds and go, hi, I'm Kevin James. Ladies and gentlemen, Taylor Swift. And leave? No, (laughs) because I'm not Kevin James. So, look, I'm happy to do it. It's awesome. It'll be fun. But, sure, I I look at a lot of those guys that are my age and they're having amazing opportunities in network television or movies, and I just go, oh, you know, not quite there yet. Got to keep working to try to get somebody to noticed that there is, like I said, an underrepresentation, certainly on television.
1: Yeah. And this is the question that I ask all of my guests, which is, when is the last time you saw something that you did not create yourself or you didn't star in yourself where you felt as if you were represented on screen?
0: Well, I mean, I guess the Samantha B show, because mm-hmm. when I look at that show, I go, oh, there's a woman I mean she's a lot younger than I am but I go there's a woman who's just kicking ass she's in an environment where she's supported properly she's creating something that is exciting and talked about and it it has some real like meat to it yeah and I, I guess that's somebody that I I just look at and I go no jealousy aside I'm just strictly rooting for her and I feel like yeah she's saying a lot of stuff I'm thinking
1: yeah I mean, that's what you need, too, is we need we need women to support each other because.
0: <laughs> uh, no kidding, because I look at I mean, I'm, I primarily work in television, but I look at television. I mean, I watch, please, I watch like 12 hours of television a day mm-hmm. and I look at it and I go, I'm not represented. I mean, I watch The Housewives because it's silly and it's gossipy, but I don't get into fist fights with my other middle aged friends. I I don't think I've ever pulled my mother's weave off. and She knows not to pull mine off. You know, and then I look at obviously I look at, you know, I watch the Kardashians and there's so much part of the zeitgeist now. And I go, okay it's kind of fun, I guess, to follow along with their whatever they do. But, no, I don't look like I don't understand them one bit. They don't speak for me. I don't speak for them. I don't really get it. It's like a little fun distraction. But, yeah, definitely. uh, I mean, it's funny you brought up Oprah at the beginning because I actually was thinking we really need her again. You know, like I get it. She wanted to change her life and she did all that stuff but there's like a real void Mm -hmm. you know so anyway i'm i'm doing what i can to try to fill that void and represent the ladies over 50 who are funny and maybe a little bit inappropriate
1: (laughs) well thank you so much for doing that and i again i admire all you do and i hope one day you get that show i really
0: oh you're a doll i admire what you do it's important and i will keep reading and listening
1: oh thank you so much thanks again kathy for coming on thanks Aisha. And that's all we've got for today. I'm so honored to have Kathy on for such a candid conversation. You can find links to the things we touched on, including her new book, in the show notes. And as always, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Megaphone, Stitcher, or any other place you find your podcasts. Please keep rating us on iTunes, folks. We really appreciate your support. Represent is produced by the lovely and awesome Marilyn Williams. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is chief content officer at Panoply. And you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Slate Represent. Music is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. Until next time.